Let's pray together. Father, it's been one of those days that we believe and know that we're called because if we weren't called, we wouldn't do it anymore. When there is brokenness all around us and there's hurt and there's pain, even death, we know, Lord, that you raise up men and women for such times as these to give the call of the shofar, to sound the trumpet, to warn the people. So Father, tonight I pray that as we dive into your word together, that true heaven-sent devil-chasing revival would break out in all of our hearts, that we would watch over our own lives, we would watch over our families, we would watch over our community. And Father, I pray tonight, if there is one person here that doesn't know you, may the Holy Spirit draw him or her tonight to the foot of the cross. That we may acknowledge the Christ who bled and died and was resurrected. Now, Father, hide your preacher behind the cross. Turn us loose. Let us preach, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thanks for coming back tonight after I tore up your microphone last night. But uh, you were very gracious, and they gave me uh, choices tonight, either to go with what I had on last night or old school. So I went old school tonight. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 33. Your pastor and I took a little tour because I was in Louisville, Kentucky when your community was hit by the tornado a few years ago. And as I drove home last night and I began to think about our time together tonight, tomorrow night, and on Wednesday, I said, what direction, Holy Spirit, would you want me to go? And I really sensed that I was supposed to share this passage with you to remind us again of why we are saved. That we were not saved to sit, we were saved to serve. And part of the way that we serve is that we become watchmen over our homes and over our families and over those that God has entrusted to us. As your pastor and I drove around very fast, I might add, around this neighborhood, we saw the path of the tornado. We went into neighborhoods that no longer have homes. He began to tell me stories of great victory, but also great sadness. And any time a community goes through what you have gone through, there will be stories to tell. There will be moments of celebration at life, but also grieving and tears when we speak of those who are lost. But what I do know is I trust and believe in a sovereign God that nothing catches Him by surprise. And because of that, even in the midst of the darkness, when we walk through the valley of the shadows, we can trust Him and know that He is God, that He is the I Am. But acknowledging Him as the I Am, we have to acknowledge that we are the I Am Not. Amen? That we are not as much as in control as we think we are sometimes. But when God lays a message on our heart to live out and then to tell, we must be willing to do so. Ezekiel was one of those individuals who ministered during one of the darkest eras of Israel, Babylonian captivity. Seventy years 
of darkness. But yet, in the midst of that, God raises up a Christ-like figure to give hope, to let them know that this would come to an end eventually, but we must be prepared. We must be a watchman. The Bible reads, beginning in verse 1, Again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people, and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coast and set him for their watchman, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people. Very early on in our ministry, 27 and a half years ago or so, I was told, Joel, when you stand in a pulpit or you stand at a youth camp or you're standing in a revival or a conference, make sure you take on the role of a watchman. You declare truth because you may be speaking to five, fifty, five hundred, or five thousand, but somebody there needs to be warned. Someone needs to be willing to blow the trumpet. You've heard the trumpet blown tonight in song. Did you see the lyrics of those songs? I love the melodies. I love the arrangements of songs, but I look at the words in songs. Whether it's a hymn of yesterday written in the 17th century or the new songs that are being sung on popular radio stations today, I always listen to the words. What do they say about Jesus? What do they say about the cross? What do they say about the resurrection? What do they say about my healing, my salvation that is found only in Christ? We must be willing to blow the trumpet and warn the people. Just about two and a half years ago, I had to heed a warning that was given to me. It was given to me by my bride. My bride, Joe, would love to be here, but we have a two and a half year old and an 11 year old that sort of consumes our life right now, and that's quite all right. But Joe and I had been married 13 years and had not had a, had a baby. So I would basically come to the conclusion that maybe that was not God's plan for our life. And then at age 40, my bride tells me, you're going to be a daddy. And it's been a wonderful adventure. And we thought we were just going to have the one. And then at age 50, my wife tells me again, you're going to be a daddy again. I immediately went back and looked at the passage about Abraham and Sarah, amen. I wanted help, I needed hope, I needed encouragement. But the doctors had told us and warned us, you know, your wife's 45, you're 50, you're in the high risk category, you need to take care of yourself, you need to do this, you need to do that. Laid it all out for us and we had nine months of picture perfect pregnancy and we're grateful and humbled by that. But through those last several weeks before we were due to have our, our little girl, uh, I'd sort of moved out to the couch because Joe was pregnant all over, if y'all know what I'm talking about. And if I want her to know that, I'll tell her that myself, okay? But so she had taken over the bed. So I was on the couch, but the week that Danny was due, I decided I, I'm, I'm going to move back into the, into the bedroom. And so I remember laying down that night, but about 1 o'clock in the morning, Joe came and she sort of rubbed on my arm and said, we, we probably need to head to the hospital. And I said, really? And she says, yeah. She said, my contractions are going. And I said, well, how far apart are they? She said, I don't know. I said, well, how far apart are they supposed to be? I don't know. And so I said, well, 
I'll do whatever you want to do. And then all of a sudden she has this huge contraction. And she lays back on me and she says, I think we need to go. And I said, sounds great. So my mother-in-law had just arrived that afternoon. We go into the bedroom to tell her. So we get into the car and lay my hand on Joe's belly. And she lays her hand on my hand and we begin to pray. Lord, just take care of Joe. Take care of our little girl. Get us to the hospital safely. All of the above. Trust in God. We pull out of the driveway into our little subdivision, and Joe says, you need to speed up. And I said, okay. And so I'm 35, 40 miles per hour and 45 zone, and we're going down through there, and she looks at me real funny, and she says, you might need to really, really speed up. And I said, okay. And so I began to pray, no Louisville Metro Police Department and all green lights. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we can pray about anything, Amen. And so, so we went through there. We didn't see any police officers. We didn't see any red lights. And man, we're going. And the neighborhood we lived in, you, you pulled out on what's called the Waterston Highway. And there's an exit 10, 11, and 12. Exit 12 is where the Louisville International Airport is. And 13 and 14 is where Zeke really loved to go to the Louisville Zoo. And then our hospital was at exit 18. So as we pulled out onto the Waterston Highway, Joe says... Uh, Baby, I need you to see if the baby's head is crowning. I said, what? She said, yeah, I, I just, I, I feel real funny and things. And I said, well, I feel real funny now. I mean, wow. And so while I'm driving, I, I, I checked and sure enough, my little girl's head was crowning. And so I really sped up. I, I mean, I'm, I'm getting down the road. Exit 10, exit 11, exit 12. And then... Joe just lays her seat back. She puts her feet on the dashboard. And she looks at me and she says, she's about to drop. I was a catcher for 13 years in baseball. <laughs> having no idea that every time that I caught a pitcher, I was preparing for my little girl to be born. So with my left hand on the steering wheel, I just put my hand down there. And my little girl jumps in my hand going down the highway. We didn't stop. I was too scared to stop. And so then I look at her and I say, what do you want me to do with her? She says, just put her on my chest. And so I put her on my chest. Then I'm praying, Lord, out of the thousand one things that could go wrong, please, Father, just let my little girl be all right. And I laid my hand on her head and she gave us a little cry and then another cry. And the Lord later on told me that was the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, I'm okay. I'm okay. Well, we're rejoicing now. We had a baby in the car. I mean, we're just having a big time. And we got so excited, we drove right past exit 18. <laughs> and so I did my best 24 Jack Bauer. I put it in reverse on the Waterson Highway and backed up about 60, 70 yards, pulled up on exit 18. We finally got over to the hospital. We pull into labor and delivery. And I said, baby, you're all right. And she's, Joel, I guess I'm just numb or I'm in shot one. I, I, I'm okay. Just go in and get us some help. So I went in and looked around. There's nobody there. Excuse me. And this little girl sticks her head out, the little security guard. And I says, ma'am, I hate to bother you, but we just had our little girl in the front seat of the car. She evidently hit a button or something. These lights start flashing. This trauma team comes down. They got this wheelchair. I mean, they're coming out. And they get to the car. And Joe says, what did you tell them? So they open the door and, there's, and, and she goes, guys, I'm good. And there was just a calmness. There was a peace. And they 
put Joe and Danny into the wheelchair, and I said, I'm going to go park the car. I'll bring your bags up. She delayed them long enough so I could cut the umbilical cord. And then they put my little girl under that heat lamp, and they're over there working on Joe, Dr. Gerhard, and, and, and seven or eight uh, female nurses over there, and they found out I was a pastor. And then they began to cut up with us a little bit because we realized Danny was going to be okay. Joe was awesome, and Joe's now my hero. Did I mention that? And... One of the nurses says, hey, pastor, when they bill you, make sure you don't let them charge you for delivering the baby because you delivered the baby. <laughs> we got a check for $2,750 from that hospital because we had prepaid. They paid us to have a baby, amen. God's so good. God is so good. I share that story with you because I listened to a warning that night. We need to go to the hospital. Now, it didn't turn out exactly the way that we wanted it to. And sometimes life does not turn out exactly the way that you want it to. We may have in our mind, this is what happened. See, because I was there when Zeke was born. Nine years prior to Danny being born, and we went through the whole Pitocin thing and speeding up the contractions and all of the above, and I was there and got to breathe with Joe and do all that kind of stuff. And so in my mind, that's what my expectation was. But then God said, no, we're going to do it this way this time. See, you can make your plans, but God orders your steps. And some of us right now, we got plans for our future. This is what I want to be when I grow up. This is what I want to do. And then God says, no, I want you to do it my way, and this is what I want you to do. But there's going to be people like your pastor, myself, other evangelists who've come and stood behind this desk, that stood behind the desk at the, the former building where the church met, and have warned you for years and say, listen to me, things aren't going to turn out always the way that you want them to turn out. And you've got to be willing to trust God no matter what. You've got to be willing to say, Lord, even though I cannot trace your hand, I will trust your heart. As C.H. Spurgeon told us so long ago. But what we've got to be willing to do is that when someone blows the shofar, when they blow the trumpet and they warn us, let's respond to it. Let's do something with it. I told Pastor a few minutes ago as we were traveling around that my significant memory of my childhood, like some of the kids who will always remember the tornado that blasted through here a few years ago, I remember April the 3rd, 1974. We lived about eight miles west of Athens. H.D. Bagley, Ken Rainey, those guys who were on the three major stations in Huntsville, Alabama, a couple of them got knocked off the air, and I remember him, him talking about a bow echo, and it was right in Limestone County, right where we lived, and my mom and dad heard that warning, and we didn't have a storm pit. We didn't even have a ditch. But my dad had read somewhere that sometimes when a tornado comes through and it, it destroys the home, but in the center of the house where all the plumbing pipes are and in the bathtub, you may can survive. And I was 10 years old, almost 10 years old. I turned 10 that April the 28th, but this was April the 3rd, so I was still nine years of age. My little sister was, was five. And I remember them herding Kim and I into the bathroom and putting us into the bathtub. Then they took one of the mattresses off of the bunk beds and put the mattress on it. That scared us worse than a tornado did. But I want to tell you, they heard the sound of the trumpet. They were warned and they did something with it. I'm going to tell you, every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday morning, Wednesday night, I get to warn 
fine folks in Athens, Alabama. But sometimes they don't listen to the warnings. They do their own thing. That preacher don't know anything. Or he may know a little bit, but I wonder who he's talking about because he's certainly not talking to me. Maybe this week the Lord contacted your pastor to contact Scott and I so that we could be here for such a time as this so that you could be warned. Now it may not be pending disaster, but it could be pending change. Something's about to change in your life. Something's about to be maybe turned upside down. You thought you were going to go north, but the Lord said go south. We've got to be willing to, to listen when someone speaks into our life prophetically to let us know that maybe God has a different plan for you. Maybe he wants to steer you in a different direction that you wanted to go. I told you last night, I wanted to be a weatherman. You know the reason why I wanted to be a weatherman? Because of what happened on April the 3rd, 1974. I wanted to warn people. I wanted to be able to issue those tornado watches and tornado warnings and thunderstorm watches and thunderstorm warnings. I wanted to be the one so people could be warned. And then as H.D. Bagley told me at Fox Run Golf Course that day, you're given a whole more important warning. You're talking about eternity, Joel. And I knew that that was confirmation in my heart that I was doing the right thing, that I fulfilled my call. I didn't necessarily want to be a preacher. I told you last night I ran from God for seven years. I was terrified at the thought of public speaking and getting up in front of folks and having to be nice. Living in a glass house where everybody knows everything about you. No one would want to pursue that. It has to be a call of God. Not only to be a pastor, a minister, a worship pastor, a whatever the calling may be, but yet also a watchman who's willing to tell the truth in a culture that don't like the truth. Because the truth is not just a statement. Truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. And when we start singing about the truth, Jesus, when we start preaching about the truth, Jesus, when we start teaching about the truth, Jesus, things change. Christ himself even said, I come to divide families. There will be some who will be for me, there will be others who will be against me. But I am the Lord. His words to the first century that is applicable today in the 21st century for us. You stand for Jesus at your job long enough, you will be persecuted. But yea, all that will live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. You need to be Concerned if you're well-liked by everyone. Because the Word of God says that if you're going to stand for truth, which you're standing for Jesus, which means it's countercultural to where we are today in 2017. But we must be willing to warn the people. Look at verse 4 and 5. Then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet, taketh not warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning. His blood shall be upon him, but he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. There will be individuals who will listen to Pastor Sammy and to Joel and to others who will stand behind their respective desk. They'll preach God's word and there will be many who will respond. They will heed the warning. They'll do something with it and they'll save their own soul. But there will be others who will reject. And as I shared with you last night about my daddy getting saved, I'd come to that place, I says, Lord, is my dad going to die and go to hell? And then I made up my mind, the only way he's going to go to hell is he crawls over me. Because somebody's going to stand at the mouth of hell and say, no. 
I'm going to share Jesus with you. I'm going to keep talking to you about Jesus. And when you close the door in my face, I'm going to continue to stand there to tell you about Jesus. We give up too easily today. Or we get our little feelings hurt or somebody says something bad about us on Facebook. Listen, I went to Africa where you could be killed for speaking the name of Jesus. You and I hunker down and get our feelings hurt if somebody says the least little thing about us on Twitter or any kind of social media platform. We tuck our tail and we run. Where there are people around the world today that are standing up for Jesus and being beheaded for it. Our Western view of Christianity is very, very weak. So what must we do? We must be willing to stand in the face of adversity. Now, I don't know if it's going to be in my lifetime or my son or daughter's lifetime, but there will probably be a time somewhere if Christ tears is coming long enough that you could be arrested for saying some of the things that we say. Singing some of the songs that we sing. Teaching some of the lessons that we teach. We're, we're probably approaching that time at some time in the future. But even now, we have situations, circumstances, sermons that are preached, songs that are sung, that go against the flow of the culture. And I get those anonymous letters. I got one last week. Said I'd stepped over a line because I'd mentioned something. You know what those letters let me know? I'm doing something right. Because if everybody loves me and everybody loves my preaching and everything, everybody loves what I'm saying, something's wrong. We are living in days where we must be willing to warn. Now then, it's almost as if Ezekiel changes course because he realizes not everybody's going to warn the people. I need to address them as well. Look at it in verse 6. But if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. Now, I don't know how that happens theologically, Pastor. I have to be honest with you. I know uh, our salvation's not taken away from us. I, I know, I, I just understand the scriptures in such a simple way. I don't know how their blood will be on our hands, but nevertheless, the Bible says that. That some so-called preachers of the gospel, they are only preachers because they don't share the gospel. They don't share the message of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And yet they still call themselves reverend or doctor or whatever they may be. And I, and I look at this text and I say, Lord, please help me to understand and comprehend that even when I'm given a devotion to the Athens High School football team, let me share Jesus so that someone can be born again. Let me be a watchman to those young men between the ages of about 15 or so to 17 or 18, Lord, let me be able somehow, some way that they can know that Jesus Christ is the only way. Now, I may be speaking about some obscure Old Testament prophet or man or woman, but somehow, some way, i got to get to Jesus as soon as I can. I pray we do that in our songs that we sing, in the sermons we preach, in the Sunday school lessons we teach. Get back to the cross as quickly as possible. Because this whole book, all 66 books, is about the cross. You can find Jesus in every book. And when you and I preach that and sing that and worship that, I believe it brings honor and glory to Him. 
Pastor, I have to be honest with you, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. I don't think that's just about preachers or evangelists or worship pastors. I think it's for every child of the living God who's been born again that we have opportunities in our cul-de-sacs, in our subdivisions, in our neighborhoods, on our jobs to share this good news of Jesus, to be a watchman to a friend or to a neighbor or to a family member, but yet we remain silent because we are afraid. And you and I, in our lives, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave now lives inside of us. 2,000 years later, the Holy Ghost of God that raised Christ out of that tomb lives inside of me and lives inside of you if you've been born again. And we're afraid? What are we afraid of? Somebody's going to be critical of us? They already are. As the old country song says, let's give them something to talk about, amen? Let's go ahead and be a bold witness for Jesus. Stand up for what is right and what is truth as we stand up for him. But his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. Keep reading with me. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. We've got to remember the context. This is several hundred years before the birth of Jesus. Israel is in Babylonian captivity. This is not under Roman rule. This is not under Assyrian rule. This is under Babylonian rule. But I've set you as a watchman of the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. God does no evil, but God will use evil for his glory. He will take difficult moments and terrible situations and tragedy and use it for his glory. That's why he's God. He'll, he'll take the despair that you and I feel in our soul about a loss, about a circumstance, and if you and I will give the Holy Spirit enough time, we will see that begin to turn so that Jesus Christ could be honored and he could be glorified. So we see in the text that Ezekiel is warning Israel from Jehovah because it is ultimately Jehovah that brings judgment. And he brought judgment on Israel. Israel reminds us today of us. Oh, we're doing great and we're wonderful. We got plenty of groceries. We got plenty of gas in the car. We got 2.3 kids. Uh, the house has got a mortgage and we're pay, able to pay all the bills and life is just going well. Man, everything is fine. And we have a tendency to forget God. I reminded First Baptist just a few weeks ago I was pastoring a little church in Athens, First Union, during Gulf War I. And I'll never forget that first night as CNN covered those missiles coming down into Baghdad. And the, light, and the sky was filled up with the light from those tracers, from the, from the missiles that were coming in, and, and, and the artillery that was being shot up at those missiles. After that initial, our church filled up. I mean, young men who thought they were going to get drafted and go to war. Their girlfriends were coming. People were getting saved. Every time I gave an altar call, listen, people would start coming to the altar while I was still preaching. Oh, listen, we were all just in a, in a quandary. We didn't know what was going Man, we was crying out to God. And then we know what happens. 100 hours. We only lost a very few men. We pushed Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait back into Iraq. War came to a close. Guess what? The church house emptied again. That's Israel. 
Oh, it's tough times. Oh, God, we love you, God. Forgive us, God. We repent to you, God. But when times are good, who are you again? That's us. And so when I look at this passage, it's not just a few hundred years before Jesus was born. Man keeps repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. We think we are self-sufficient. We think that we can do it all, but we cannot. And then he says, I need watchmen who will stand up and warn them from me. Because it is God who brings judgment. And it rains on the just and the unjust. You guys saw that in your own community. That it wasn't just lost people that lost everything and some lost their lives. It was people who loved Jesus as well. It rains on the just and the unjust. The Bible goes on to say in verse 8, And when I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thy hand. Well, listen, that just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair, but nevertheless, it is God's way. People are saved by the voices of other men and women who are willing to be a watchman and step into their life and tell them a hard truth. It's what I had to do for my dad, and he didn't like it. His brash 25-year-old preacher boy son coming in and telling him he's going to hell. Oh, but I believe in God. I said, Daddy, the devils believe in God. They, they actually even shudder at his very name. You think he liked being told that? Absolutely not. But the convicting power of the Holy Spirit overcame his anger, overcame his frustration, and he got born again. And there are people in your family, in your circle, that you work with, you go to school with, that need you to be a watchman tomorrow morning. When you gather together here in a few weeks for Easter Sunday, I'm praying, I'm believing that this revival, your pastor had it happen at just the right time so it gives you just enough time over the next four weeks to make sure that you corral who all needs to be here to be able to sound of the gospel. Pastor, I just can't, I'm just not wise to talk to people. And I want to tell you, you, you'll talk about what you love. I mean, we got folks that love Alabama and Auburn football at First Baptist. And Lord, you get them talking about that, you can't get them to shut up. But then you bring up the name of Jesus. Now, I wonder where our heart is. And, and, and so, we, we may know all the statistics of our favorite running back and our favorite team and who's done this and who's done that. But when it comes to the thing of God, it's because we hadn't spent time in this word. See, we, we become familiar with whom we love and what we love. Oh, listen, when Joe and I started dating, I went to school on that girl. She was a Lacey Springs girl. I was a West Limestone boy. Nobody knew her from my side of town, my side of the county, and nobody on her side knew about me. So I had to make some phone calls. Tell me about Joellen Mahan. Who is this young lady? Give me a little background. I tell folks today, the only regret I have about my relationship with Joe is I didn't marry her six weeks after I met her. That's my only regret. I'm desperately in love with that young lady. And now, almost 25 years later, I'm more in love now than I was then. I got saved when I was eight years old. I'm more in love with Jesus now than I was then. So you want me to talk about Joe? I can give you a whole lot of information. 
You want some information about Jesus? I can tell you about him too. Because that's two things in my life that I love. You ought to be able to share with others about something you love. You ought to be able to be a watchman and stand up with boldness and say, this is how it is. This is a thus saith Joel about Joe or about Jesus. This is what he's done in me. This is what he's done for me. And he can do the same thing for you. Now, it may not run exactly the same pattern. That's what's cool about God. He's a creator. He's creative. Your pastor was telling me about these lights in your baptistry area. He says, you know, the color of the wall out here are the same as in there, but because of that different lighting, it comes across as different. God would think up something like that. He, he would be the one that would put the sun 93 million miles away at the exact perfect distance so that you and I could have light. That he had put the moon 250,000 miles away to control the tides of the ocean. Only God could do something. A creator. And he wants to create something in you. He wants to give you something that is beyond you. Because we don't serve an ordinary God, little g. There's plenty of those. But we serve God with a big G. Who says, I love Phil Campbell, Alabama so much that I'm going to send my son Jesus to die for them. And on the third day, I'm going to raise him from the grave. And if those people that live in that town will call on me and repent of their sins and believe, they'll be saved. And we'll get to spend eternity with that creator God. But you and I have got to be willing to open our mouth. We've got to be willing to sing the song, preach the sermon, teach the lesson, live the life. We must be willing to do it. Look at verse 9. Let me wrap this up. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. For Brother Scott and other worship leaders, Brother Terry and others, every time you sing, sing to deliver your soul. Pastor, other preachers, future ministers and missionaries in the room, listen to me. Every time you get a chance to stand, make sure that you share and deliver your soul. How do I do that, Pastor Joel? You do that by giving people a warning and letting them know that without Christ they are doomed. Somehow, someway, that truth must be conveyed through our singing, through our preaching, through our teaching, but most of all in how we live. I recently had the privilege to speak at the State Evangelism Conference at First Baptist Church Pelham. Dr. Chuck Kelly from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary was our first speaker that evening. He spoke on Christ-likeness, and it got up inside of me. I've just got to be honest with you. He said that we're living in a world where people just don't act Christ-like. They say they're saved, but they don't act like Christ. And it was a very simple message. I, I was expecting more from a Ph.D. president of a seminary. But guess the only sermon I remember besides my own? His. Because he said Christ-likeness is what will win a community. Christ-likeness is what will change a school. Christ-likeness is what will make a church a light on a hill. 
hey, I'm a member over at the Mountain View Baptist Church. And then the next moment, you're using expletives and cursing and acting a fool. That sends a message out there to them that something's not right. And what you think you have is not real. But boy, when we have a Christ-likeness about us and then we match it by opening up our mouths and blowing the shofar and warning the people, blowing that trumpet loudly, now sometimes you just can blow it very quietly. My son Zeke's taking band this time at Westminster Christian Academy. I wish he hadn't. He has no talent whatsoever. And he knows it. He's a great athlete. He can run, he can throw a ball, he can sink a basket, he can do all those kind of things. But he said, you know, Dad, your granddaddy, my papa, could play any musical instrument. And he did everything by just listening. He couldn't read a note, but you hummed something to him, he could just run with it. It missed my generation. And evidently it missed my son as well. So we started out with a trumpet, and now we're with the baritone. So we have to carry this big thing, and we've nicknamed him Barry. And Barry sort of takes up the back end of our automobiles. But he's practicing. He told me the other day, he says, Daddy, I won first chair. I said, well, how many were going for it? He said, one. <laughs> I'm still proud of him. He's trying. we got to be willing to blow the trumpet, even when we don't know the notes. When we don't know the whole score, when we don't know the melody or the arrangement, be willing to blow the trumpet. Because there are people in this town that need Jesus. Your pastor and I were on the other side of the road that goes to nowhere, right across the railroad tracks, looking back toward the church. And I saw all those broken trees and the brownness of the undergrowth and things. And then I saw this beautiful church and this steeple. And to me, that's light in the darkness. God's placed you here to be a watchman, to blow the trumpet. Now, you had to suffer loss so that you would have empathy with your city. There is a reason and a purpose of why everything you've gone through, up to this moment that you've gone through, some of it may not be fair, some of it may not be right, and we'll never get over that part of it. But we start from here, and we blow trumpets. And we're willing to do it. Lord, here I am, send me. Isaiah 6 and 8. Lord, here I am, send me. Whom shall I send? Lord, send me. Into many of these new homes that have been built since that storm. Housing projects that have been built since the storm. Keep telling them about Jesus. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep blowing the trumpet. Because thou hast delivered thy soul. I want you to bow your heads with me. On a night like tonight, beautiful outside, finally sort of feels like springtime. We have a great privilege to become emboldened with the spirit of the living God to go and tell others. We don't have to back up. We don't have to be afraid. 
And yet some of us have not allowed the Holy Spirit to use us to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our own home. I'm driving in tonight on 24 and Joe has taken our son to track and field practice. He had just gotten out of the car. And I said, Joe, I just wanted to call and tell you that I love you. And I hope you guys have a great night. And she says, baby, can I pray over you? I said, you certainly can. Are you praying with your family? Dads? Do your babies see you and hear you pray with them and with their mama at home, not just at church over an offering or in a Sunday school class? Now this is where people start saying he's then going from preaching to meddling. Well, part of being a watchman is I meddle a little bit. Some of us tonight would love to be a watchman to the nations, but we're not even a watchman to our own address. And that needs to change. See, revival could do that. And this would be a great starting point that you would come home and say, Honey, I repent. I confess. Now see, your family may be like my family was for a long time. My dad didn't attend church. My mama went to revival meetings alone, dragging Kim and I behind her. And maybe you're here tonight and your husband's at the house or somewhere. I want you to redeem your home. I want you to stand there with boldness as a godly woman. And if it requires you taking that anointing oil and you put it over the doorpost and the side post of your house and you begin to claim your husband, your teenage sons and daughters, your, your, your grandchildren for Jesus. Let that revival spirit break out inside of you and use this day, March the 20th, 2017, as, as a line in the sand where we said, I've stepped over. I want to be out of my comfort zone. I want to be a watchman. I want my life to matter. I've talked about my daddy a lot. When I was a little boy, my dad got into finding out about our family tree, genealogy. Where did the Riggs and the Carwile Bunch come from? He had dragged me all over North Alabama and South Central Tennessee to find one name to put in a slot somewhere so that we would know where we came from. We'd go to these old Civil War era, Revolutionary War era cemeteries and a lot of the old headstones, you'd have to dust it off or almost get some kind of uh, material and put it on the headstone so that you could read it. But most of them would have the date of the birth on one side, the date of the death on the other, but right in the middle, they'd put a dash. And a woman by the name of Linda Ellis saw that, and she said, that's our life. As important as the date of the birth and the date of the death, it's the dash that is the most important. And this is what she said. She said, I read of a preacher who stood to speak at the funeral of his friend. And he referred to the dates on his tombstone from the beginning to the end. And he noted that first came the date of his birth and, and he spoke of that following date with tears. And he said what mattered most of all was that little dash between those years.
For that dash represents all the time that he spent alive on earth. And now those who love him know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live in love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you and I never know how much time is left. We could be at dash mid-range. So when your eulogy is being read and your life's actions to rehash, would you be pleased with the things that the preacher says about how you spent your dash? How are you spending your dash? Is it for things that matter or for the things that do not matter? Let us quit being successful at the things that do not matter. So, Father, we give you these next few minutes. I pray for both men and women of God alike who need to come tonight and seal this and say, Lord, I want to be a watchman in my home. I want to be a watchman to my family and my friends and my co-workers and my neighbors. And Lord, I want you to do something through me, something supernatural. I can't do it in my flesh. I can't do it on my own. I'm too scared. But Lord, I give you my life now. Here I am. Send me. And Father, I pray for others that have so patiently listened to me rant and rave the last 35 minutes or so and now, Father, they need to make a move for you. They need to be saved. They need to call on the name of the Lord with belief by repentance in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So, Holy Spirit, have your way these next few moments. May you be glorified at the result, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.